All right, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, if you were here last week, we left off last week by only looking at verse number 28 of this section. And we touched on how God has a plan to present us holy and blameless before Him, and that God desires to use each of us in this process, not just the preachers and the teachers. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go into that a little bit more deeply, and then we're going to come back and really break down the sections of this passage that I just read to you. But I want to take some time first to kind of reiterate where we left off and go a little bit deeper, so hopefully you'll understand this. Because still for too long, most Christians today see the role of us who are in leadership, preachers, teachers, as the ones who are responsible to prepare the church. And as you saw last week, God desires to present us to himself blameless and holy. But as we touched on at the very, very end, God wants to use all of us in that process of each of us becoming more like Jesus Christ. And for too long, we have designed churches to be spectator places. We focus more on the Sunday service and what goes on at 11 o'clock. And we think that's church. As you're going to see in this passage, and what we're going to go to next in Ephesians, God has designed that the church would become more and more mature. But you know what we've done in our churches today? Because we focused on the wrong type of growth, not spiritual growth and people becoming more like Jesus, but numerical growth. Because we've focused on numerical growth, we actually have designed our churches to become more and more immature. Because if your focus is on numerical growth, you're going to try to make things the lowest con the common denominator so that more people will feel comfortable and more people will come. But the Bible actually never talks about numerical growth as the focus, but spiritual growth is being the focus. As you're going to see in just a second that we're to be speaking the truth to each other in love. And actually, if we were faithful to the scriptures, our numbers may go down, but the growth of the church will actually occur. And so tonight, I hope to be used of God to help you see if the church is not growing, it's not that you need a new pastor. It's because the body is not being the body. All right, go to Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 11 through 16. <clears throat> it's a passage you've heard me teach on quite a bit, and I'm not going to focus on the first part of it because you've heard me teach on that a lot. If you're curious about what I've taught on that because you're new, go back to the website and go to the Ephesians Bible study. We spent a lot of time on that and when we get into Ephesians 4. But in verses 11 through, six, 11 through 16, Paul says, "...in he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints..." excuse me, for the work of the ministry. Did you catch that? The pastors, there's different types. Not all of them are going to be the same. Some are going to be better preachers than others. Some are going to be better shepherds than others. Some are going to be more of an evangelist than others. 
He, the pastors have been given by God to equip the church for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you were to ask most church members today, whose job is it to build up the body, who would they say? The pastors. That's not what this passage says. Pastors are supposed to be equipping the body to do the work of the ministry so that the body will be built up. And again, look at verse 16. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it what? It builds itself up in love. God is desiring to present us to himself blameless and holy. And guess what? He wants to use you in that process. My role is to equip you through the ministry and the teaching of the word of God to go do it. By the way, if you ever watch a football game, do the coaches play? What are the coaches' jobs? Coach, to equip, to train. You'll have head coach. You'll have linebackers coach. You'll have running back coach. You'll have offensive line, defensive line, whatever, wide receivers coaches. They'll have huddles. They'll call timeouts. They'll have practices. They'll have times they get together. But who go run the plays? The team, the players. In time, some of those guys will become coaches and equip others. In the church, God's designed it in the same way. But what we've done over the years is expected the pastor, the coach, if you will, the equipper of the players, to be the one who does the work. Someone sick, who do we call? The pastor. Someone need to be saved, who do we call? The pastor. All the way through, we've had this wrong mindset of the, in the church. Now, Real quickly, part of the problem is in the King James, there's a comma that shouldn't be. If some of you have a King James in front of you, you'll see that he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers. Listen to how it words in the King James. For the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edification of the body. In the King James translation, because of a comma that doesn't belong, it says that these guys are supposed to be equipping the saints, comma, doing the work of the ministry, comma, and building up the body. And so for the longest time in the church, the only English translation we had was the King James. But hopefully I'm going to tell you something that you, well, hopefully you already know this. But if you don't, the periods and the commas aren't inspired. Because in the original text, in the Greek and the Hebrew, there were no periods. There were no commas. Actually, when the people do the translation, the Bible scholars have to know how sentence structure is to kind of figure out where the sentence stops and where the next one starts and where commas should or shouldn't be. And the commas are their best guess as to where they should be. Because we've grown in our knowledge of how to study the Greek and the Hebrew. Listen to me closely. Every single English translation since the King James, every single one, including the new King James, has removed the comma from between equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So before it said, we got these pastors for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edification of the body. It sounded like it was all their job. But when you take the comma out now between equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, listen to how it reads now. 
He gives these four different types of pastors for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. All of a sudden, the work of the ministry totally changes. And as you've already seen in the full context of this passage, it's the body's job to build each other up. All right. Now, I wrote down in my notes a few things, and you're not going to be able to keep up with me on this. I'm sorry, but I'm going to go real fast here. <clears throat> the pastors slash preachers are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. One, so that the body of Christ will be built up. Two, so that the body will grow in unity of, in knowledge of who Jesus is. All this is from this passage. Three, so that the body will become more mature. Four, so that the body will look more and more like Christ. That's all here in this passage. Oh, by the way, remember Romans 8, 29 we talked about last time? And he predestined us to what? To be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Let me stop real quick because i got a couple more notes here. But whose job is it to help the, bro the brothers become more and more like Christ? The brothers. The brothers. You're going to see that even more clearly in another passage we'll go to next. But all these things that God is desiring to do is actually not to be done by me. My job is to teach you the word of God so that you can go do that in the body. However, God uses you. We'll see that in just a second. Uh, also, another one, the body will not stay in a childlike state. This is another thing that God's designed. So the church won't stay in, in a childlike state and be tossed around by false teachers and deceitful schemers. All this will happen. Let me read it to you real quickly again. The body of Christ will be built up. The body will grow in unity and knowledge of who Jesus is. The body will become more and more mature. The body will look more and more like Christ. And the body will not stay in a childlike state and tossed to and fro by false teachers and deceitful schemers. All of this will happen, listen closely, not when we get a better preacher. But hopefully you get a preacher that's willing to say, I'm not supposed to do this. You are. I know it's something we don't want to hear. I taught this for years. The last two years I was at Indy Atlantic, I was teaching this principle as God was beginning to show it to me. And when the service was over one Sunday, after two years of teaching it, a couple older ladies came up to me afterwards and they said, Pastor, would you please forgive us? I said, sure, what for? They said, well, we shouldn't have expected you to be at our house all the time and to come over for coffee and to be at all our surgeries and do all this stuff. We shouldn't have expected that of you. Would you please forgive us? I said, ladies, it's forgiven. And then they both leaned in and looked around and they said, but you're going to come see us still, right? <laughs> and they were serious as anything. Go to Proverbs 27, verse 17. Proverbs 27, verse 17. <clears throat> iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. I know there's a group of guys over here that get together regularly, and you guys probably were together last night. That's where real growth occurs. <laughs> It's nice to get together in a big church building and have worship and sing to the Lord and hear a preaching or a teaching of the Word of God. But folks, if the church would really become mature from having great church services, the American church would be a whole lot healthier than they are today. We've got plenty of church services going on. Some people are fussing because we don't have them on Sunday nights anymore. More church service isn't going to solve the problem. It's when we get out of the building and spend time together in real Christian community. Some people call them small groups. Some people call them cell groups, whatever you want to call it. When you get to know each other in a smaller, more intimate setting for the purposes of encouraging one another and talking to each other about what's going on in your life as it, listen, as it pertains to what the Word of God says about that. 
We don't need you to get around and sit around like an Oprah show. Well, I think and I think and I think. No, the only thing that needs to be talked about is what does God's word say about that? And that's where real growth occurs. So I'm going to encourage you guys, keep doing it because that's church. That's church. Go to Galatians. I'm oh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians, then we'll go to Galatians. Um, uh, we, were already, we were in Proverbs, now we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I told you you weren't going to keep up with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Listen closely to this passage because at the beginning, uh, Paul's talking to the believers, the church members, if you will, as to how they're to treat their leaders. And then he continues to talk to the church members, if you will. And he says some things that we, would be, we think were the preacher's jobs. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 24, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you who? Same group. The same people he just said, respect those who are over you in the church. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of, Christ, uh, of God in Christ for you. It, go on, it goes on and on. Who's he talking to here? The, the believers, the church. And when he says to the believers, I want you to admonish the idle. I want you to encourage the faint-hearted. I want you to come alongside your brothers, and I want to use you to help them grow in their walk with Jesus Christ. But all through the years, when someone was needing a little kick in the pants, we call the pastor to go tell them what they need to be doing. It's hard to do that if you don't engage with people and have a relationship. That's a great point. And actually, we're going to head there next in Galatians. But Chris brought out that it's hard to do if you don't have a relationship. See, because the Bible says we're actually supposed to be encouraging each other, challenging each other. Well, back in Ephesians, how did Paul say it? Speaking the truth in love. Well, folks, you really can't speak the truth in love unless you've already proven you love them by relationship ahead of time. For example, there's a few folks here that I don't really know really well. And if I walked up to you and I said, hey, I see sin in your life. Are you going to hear judgment or are you going to hear that I love you? Probably going to hear judgment because I've not proven that I care for you. First time I've ever really talked to you is to say, hey, you got a problem. But if you develop the relationship with each other, then when a brother or sister comes and says, when you've already proven you love each other, hey, I see sin in your life, they'll understand that you're telling me this because you love me. Go to Galatians chapter 6. Let me show you what the scripture says here. Galatians chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, let me just stop here. He'll go, he says, you see your brother in a fault, you who are spiritual, in a spirit of gentleness, go and help them see the error of their ways for the purposes of getting it fixed, not for the point of saying, look, I'm right and you're wrong. Now, again, if you don't have a relationship already built up, 
It's not going to work. Actually, do you realize? This goes back to my teaching on the eight principles of a God-centered church. One of my principles is getting back to biblical fellowship. How we've lost biblical fellowship in our churches today. Nowadays, when we talk about having a church fellowship, where does it happen? In the fellowship hall, right? Well, guess what? According to the biblical definition of fellowship, you can never get biblical fellowship in a fellowship hall. Actually, if you were to go back and take a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it says that those believers who responded at Pentecost and 3,000 were saved, they devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to getting together and to the breaking of the bread, which was the Lord's Supper in that passage, and to prayer. That's the four things they focused on. Getting together to hear the Word of God taught, spending time together, the Lord's Supper to remind each other of why they were together, and praying together. And listen to what it says. And then every day they met in the temple courts and each other's homes. And they also ate together and spent much time. And as if anybody had need, they shared it. There was just a fellowship that went on. Go ahead, Dave. Uh, the technology now, the generation that's coming up. Well, you know what? And that's true. But we got a God that's big enough to even work even with because God can even use technology. It definitely can be a curse, but it can also be a blessing as well. But at the same time, there is a danger in what's going on with technology because nowadays everybody can share their opinion with no relationship. So you're bringing out a good point there. There's a dangerous thing of just uh, nowadays, if anybody puts anything out there, people can from all across the globe all share how they think about that and share their opinion with no relationship. The Bible says that you who are spiritual do it in a spirit of gentleness. You just don't go and tell your brother you're in sin unless you've proven to your brother already that you have that relationship. That you've proven you love him. Oh, by the way, you know in Bible in Matthew 18 when it says if, uh, if your brother sins against you, go see your brother. And if he doesn't listen, what are you to do? Take somebody with you. And then eventually you bring it before the church if he doesn't respond. Nowadays, if we see our brother in a sin, we don't even go talk to our brother. We go tell the pastoral leadership. And if we try to bring somebody, it's a deacon. Actually, let's just, I don't want to go here too long, but let's just take it down this road real quick. Take you guys to get together on Monday nights. Whose house do you meet at, Mike? We rotate. You rotate around. All right. But those same guys are the ones you've built relationships with. And you stay together. Some of you are here on Tuesday nights. And let's just say, for example, we're, do you have a big screen TV? Yeah. Okay, our small groups meet at your house. All right. Because not only are we going to spend together, we're going to watch Monday night football at your house. You know what I'm saying? And Tuesdays we might come to Bible study. Wednesdays we might get together for breakfast or something or whatever. And Fridays we might get together with our wives. But we spend much time together. If you see sin in my life, you all would be the ones who know whether or not. Because right now, the way we got church set up, you can go sit in the back row and nobody will ever know really what's going on in your life. You know why a lot of people don't want to get involved in Sunday school or small groups? Because if we really get plugged in, they'll find out I'm living with my girlfriend and we're not married. But I can sit in the back row and nobody will know. But when you spend time together, who you really are is going to come out. Oh, I can fool you on Sunday. Even the preacher can fool you. But if you spend much time together, you hit a golf ball with them, Earl, you're going to find out what they're really like. Especially when they put it in the water. Right? I haven't done it yet, but I, one day I'll experience that. Okay, I just lied because I did it the last time I played. But here's the deal. The Bible says that if you see a, a problem, you go see me or I go see you. If the other person doesn't listen, we grab someone from our group. Eventually, it needs to be brought before the church. You understand? So 
this whole purpose of God bringing us to himself blameless and holy is not to be done by the pastors. Stop expecting the pastor to go fix the people in your church. The Bible says our job is to equip you in the relationships that God's put you in to be used in those people's lives. That doesn't mean you're in charge of everybody in the church now. Just those people that God's put you together with. Well, let, me, let me show you real quick. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Look at verses 3 through 8. Remember, our purpose is to build the body up, not tear it down. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, this is the role God's given me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members or parts, and the parts all do not have the same function, so we, though we're many, are one body in Christ, and individually members or parts one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If it's prophecy, in proportion to our faith. There are some people who are going to preach in bigger settings, and some people are going to preach in smaller settings. If it's service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Do you see it? You've all been given different roles in the body, just like my body has a bunch of different parts and they all don't do the same thing in the same way. Don't learn, hear this teaching as, well, I've got to now be all this. No, 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 no. Just in the areas that you are. Some of you are givers and you bless the body. And there, for those of us who, our family and Jeff's family, who live off of people's donations to the ministries that we have, you don't know what an encouragement it is to get a check. Amen. Whether it's 25 or 500 or more, what a, an encouragement it is when those of you who have been blessed by God to be able to give to things of the ministry, you, that's you building the body up. Some of you, you're behind the scenes folks like Chris, who he just takes care of all the details for the websites. And the, I don't have to worry about putting this stuff on the website and all this stuff. He's behind the scenes, but thank God for his gifts. We shouldn't expect him to go do other stuff. Just do what it is you're gifted to do. And all the way through, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Just find out what it is God's gifted you to do and go do it. Just go do it wherever he puts you and just let God take it from there. I know you collect Bibles and Mandels have gone all over the globe. I want to stand nearby when you get your reward, Jim, because I just want to watch. I want to watch and hear the stories of what God has done through all those Bibles that you've collected over the years and what God has done. Not for your praise, but for what God has done. I just want to hear the God story. Go ahead. Is it possible that the 20% that do 80% of the work is actually the 20% that are gifted to do 20%? Actually, I would say that the 20% that do the 80% of the work are the 20% that have been supposed to do 80% of the work. Not 20% doing 20%, but 20% do it. They're supposed to do 80%. Think of the parable of the talents. He gave one five, another two, and another one, each according to their ability, each determined by God. And for years, we've tried to make everybody do the same amount. You all should pull a equal weight. You're all members. You all should pull an equal No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The one who had the five turned it into ten by God's grace. And God said, you did awesome. The one who had the two turned it into four by God's grace said, same thing, you did awesome. It's the one who didn't do anything because they were all afraid is the one that got in trouble. Folks, listen to me. Stop trying 
to expect someone else to do it. And just if God's called you to do it, just do it. And if God hasn't called you to do it, relax. He's got somebody and he'll take care of it. And set your pastors free. Because some of them are apostles, like myself, wired to travel. Some are prophets, and they're better preachers than shepherds. Some are evangelists, and they're just wired to go share with the lost, but they're probably not going to be a real good shepherd. You're going to hear people say, well, I think our pastor cared more about me when I was lost. Guess what? He's been wired by God to be an evangelist. And some are pastor teachers. They might not be the best preachers, but they're the kind of people that are going to be the shepherds who are going to walk you through stuff. They'll be comfortable in a place for a long time. But not very often are they the best communicators of the Word of God in a preaching setting. But we for too long have expected one guy to do it all. So find out how God can use you and stop worrying about whether or not everybody else is doing what they're supposed to do. And stop being like Martha and say, Lord, tell my sister to help me. And watch what God does as he builds up the body using you in ways you might not have ever even imagined as it all comes together. I'm sure if the finger could think by himself, he's probably wondering what the rest of the body's doing. You know? But thank God the fingers do what they're supposed to do, right? All right, let's go back to Colossians, because I think that's the book we're in. <laughs> Someone year, uh, about, I don't know, six months ago made a wonderful statement. They said, Jim, you're not teaching us the book of Colossians. You're teaching us the Bible using Colossians. And I like that. I like that a lot. We're not studying the book of Colossians. We're studying the Bible and just using Colossians to teach the Bible. Let's go back to the beginning of this section of Scripture and look at how Paul talks about his role in the body and what that is and what's involved. All right. Paul says here in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. All right. Now we're going to get into the specifics of what his role was, but look at what he said. He said, My responsibility by, given by God was to be a minister to who? Not just the church, but especially who? I heard it. Say it a little louder. The Gentiles. If you remember back in Galatians, Paul came to realize even though he had a heart for the Jews and wished he could go to hell so the Jews would all be saved, God had called him to go to the Gentiles. And Peter, he had called to go to the Jews. And he came to realize, I not only was called to go speak to the church, but also to a specific part of the church. Some of you are asked by God to teach or to equip. But you know what? It's more with children than it is youth, or youth than it is adults, or those who know the word better than those who don't know the word. Don't just assume that if you're supposed to go teach adults, that it's all adults. For me, I'm the most comfortable with people who are older in their relationship with the Lord, who know the word at least a little bit, because how God's wired and gifted me to communicate his word helps if the people I'm talking to know the word a little bit, because I kind of quote a lot of it real fast. I'm not real good with people who have never heard the word. Now, it doesn't mean God doesn't use me here and there once in a while. But I've come to realize the people he's gifted me to go teach and to equip are those who know the word so that they'll know him better. Amen. There are some that are wired to be evangelists. Some of you want me to come and speak to the lost. If God says yes, but not really how I'm wired. Can, oh, God, can you? Yeah, he could. And sometimes he has. But it's not specifically who I've been called to go teach. Do you understand? Paul said that his sufferings were for the church's sake and to fill up what is lacking in Jesus' afflictions. Now, so let's ask a couple of questions. And how were Paul's sufferings for the church? Any ideas? How were Paul's sufferings for the church? He was in jail at the time that he wrote this letter. Yep. 
definitely was a witness. Um, we'll jump to that one. We'll jump to the second one. Go to, go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Philippians chapter 1. Just back up a book here. Look at verses 12 through 14. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Isn't that cool? Yes. The reaction of the body to the fact that Paul was put in prison wasn't the, that they all said, well, we better not talk or we'll go there too. They were like, kind of like Thomas when Jesus said, let's go to Jerusalem. And, and they said, Jesus, don't you know last time you were there, they tried to kill you. And Thomas said, let's go and die with him. Let's go and die. We, we all call him Doubting Thomas, but we don't remember when he said, let's go die for Jesus. Let's go die with Jesus. Paul said that part of what he's doing is his sufferings are actually so that others will become more bold. Folks, you know what my prayer is? Is that as ISIS goes and kills Christians, even though the, the, our government won't acknowledge that it was because they were Christians, as ISIS goes and kills Christians, I pray Christians don't get more silent, become more bold for Jesus Christ. Here's my head, too, because I'm not changing what I believe. It's the truth. It's time that the church understood that it's time to stand up boldly for Jesus Christ and not cower back. Because the true believers, as you see, when they were being martyred for their faith in the scriptures, became more and more bold. The same ones who were beaten for preaching the gospel went straight back into the streets and did it again. And I pray the true church stands up and says, even if they kill us, we're not going to stop preaching the gospel. Even if they kick us out of their schools or whatever it is, we're not going to stop telling the truth. We're going to not try to become more, less mature. We're going to try to become more mature. Another reason, though, is, is Paul also said so that he would go through the suffering so he could comfort others in similar situations. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verses 3 through 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7. Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I don't know if some of you caught this or not, but some of you in your walk with Christ have been through stuff that other people have never gone through and probably won't go through. But there are others who will. And as God has walked you through it, you can testify to his grace in that trial. Correct. I remember when you told me after the death of your husband, it became one of the greatest blessings as your walk with the Lord increased during that time where he was the one who showed up in those times. Guess what? He's given you a glimpse of one of the ways he can use you to encourage the body. Some of you going through some things, some of you come out of alcoholism. There are people that are struggling with that, that you can come alongside and say, I've been there. God wants to use me to encourage you. And the same God that got me out of it can get you out of it. Guys, I'm telling you, I've never had a drop of alcohol except for in the long, wrong communion plate in Lutheran Church when I was eight years old. I, I can't really help a person with alcoholism. I can tell them what the word says, but I've not been there. I don't understand the struggle. 
But some of you do, and you know what God did, and he can use you. All, little by little, you're going to start to see. Some of you might even have a prison past. Oh, guess what? So did Paul. And God can use you to minister to people. Find out what it is that you've been through. Part of the reason why you're suffering is also for the sake of the body, so that you can share the comfort that God's given you. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost parents. Uh, we could go on and on. But how was Paul's suffering filling up what was lacking in Jesus' afflictions? It's always hard for us to hear that word lacking put with Jesus, isn't it? Because Jesus said it's finished, paid in full. He's already paid for all of our sins. So how was Paul filling up what was lacking in Jesus' sufferings? Well, for the sake of time, let me give you the answers real quick. First off, Satan and the world still hate Jesus. And what they do to us is really because they're after Jesus and not us. I, I want you to see that from Scripture. Go to John 15 and John 16. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you, listen, on account of who? My of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. When Paul said he was suffering what was lacking in Christ's afflictions, he just was understanding this portion of it is the, the fact that he was suffering was because of Christ and it was also because they were still trying to get at Christ through him. Oh, the, look at John 16, look at verses 1 through 4. Jesus said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God, even though it's not a real God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So one of the reasons why he was uh, suffering or what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ was because the suffering he was going through really wasn't about Paul. It was about Jesus because the world and Satan were going after Jesus. Another one is this. Second reason is, is any suffering we experience in this life because of our relationship with Christ is happening to his body. There's something cool here in Acts 9. I don't know if you've ever seen this or not. Go to Acts 9. Look at verses 1 through 5. This is one of my favorite passages. When I saw this a while back, I just, I couldn't believe it. Acts 9, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, this is Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. He doesn't say that, does he? No. He says, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I don't know if you caught that yet or not, folks. But whenever the world goes after you because of Christ, Jesus takes it personally. I don't want to hear anybody, at least in the sound of my voice or in this room, 
at all act like what happened to those Christians on that beach over there in Egypt was out of the eyesight of God. I don't want to hear a Christian anywhere who really knows who Jesus is ever say, where was God? The Bible shows us he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's happening. And he takes it personally. And he's taking names. And don't think for a second that when you go through suffering because of Christ, sometimes we suffer because of our sin. But if you're suffering because of Christ, don't think for a second that God doesn't know. And Paul said, this is happening to Christ's body. You want proof? Look at Galatians 6, 17. Galatians 6, 17. I love how Paul said this. If you ever really looked at the book of Galatians, he kind of lets them have it. He was really upset with those false teachers that had come in and said that you had to earn salvation and it wasn't by faith alone and all this stuff. And they were teaching circumcision. If you remember, he even said, I wish they cut everything off. But look what he says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. And tell me he isn't a little frustrated. He says, if I was in Galatians, it would make a lot more sense. There we go. I was looking at that. Well, that's not the verse. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I love it. From now on, don't let anybody give me any trouble. Because what I've been through has been for the cause of Christ and for the sake of the body. And didn't he have to deal with all the people who questioned his apostleship and questioned whether or not he was in it for the money and all this stuff that he was falsely accused of? Yet he was going through all the stuff he went through physically and emotionally and all that for the sake of the body. He says that in 2 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. In the list of all the things that he went through and the anxiety of the church. Yep. Don't get me going. I want to <laughs> jump in defense of your pastors right now so bad because for so often we have spent too much time behind the scenes attacking our pastors. The Bible says you're to hold them in high regard because of the position God gave them. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, that you're to obey them and make their ministry a joy, not a burden, because that won't be any good to you. Not only that, the Bible says that God is the one that's going to hold them accountable because of the higher position that he's given them. It's not your job to hold them accountable. It's God's job. And you're to just leave them alone and let God deal with them. And you'll find that things will be a whole lot better if you stop talking about what your pastor ought to be doing or shouldn't be doing and all that kind of stuff. Folks, and if you hear any brothers and sisters in your churches that are doing this, don't call us. You who have the relationship with them, come alongside and warn the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. Speak the truth in love for the purposes of reconciliation and gentleness, but get it nipped in the bud in the church pew level. So much stuff wouldn't need to happen if we had actually been faithful to the scriptures and focused on real church growth, not numerical church growth. Let me say something else to you while I'm on the platform. We've got to stop measuring how we're doing. I'm not been in all your churches, but some of your bulletins Keep track of how many we had in Sunday school last week and how many we had in worship last week. And you're spending all this time focusing on how are we doing. You're measuring the wrong stuff. I pray that you take it out of your bulletin and you stop worrying about how much we had last week. You know, we really don't count on Tuesday nights. Do you realize? And we've been doing this for I don't know how many years. Last Tuesday, for the first time, someone told me how many we had in here. I've never counted. Not worried about it. I do realize we're getting a little snug and we might have to consider where we're going next. Or pray that Calvary Chapel gets a balcony. But, uh, 
And the same thing, some of you are like, you got to know how much the offering was last week. Your church is not a club. Your church is not an organization like that. You know what? There are people that have been given the responsibility by God to worry about how much the offering was and whether or not the bills are being paid, and that's their job. That's not everybody else's job. And we all get all hyped up about whether or not we, how are we doing. I just want to know how we're doing. I just want to know how we're doing. Hear it from me in love. Stop. Stop. And begin to pray that your people in your church are loving each other more and growing in their walk with Jesus Christ. And that's the only thing you care to measure. You don't care to measure whether or not we have more here than last week. You don't have to care to measure whether or not the giving was enough to meet the budget. That do, are they growing in their walk with the Lord? Are we loving each other more and more? And that's what the Bible calls growth. All right? I'll get back off the soapbox and say, when, lastly, when we let Jesus live his life through us in suffering, the world gets to see Jesus, not us acting like Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. When we go through suffering... And we don't put on a good face, but we truly trust in the Lord, as the Bible says. Jesus begins to live his life through us in such a way that the world actually sees Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7-11, through 11, Paul says, We have this treasure, Christ in us, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Do you see it? I, I, I'll give you a little news bulletin. You know what's coming up for you between now and when Jesus takes you home? Suffering trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. I just want a day or two without it. No, each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Are you happy? There we go. I had to quote it in your translation for you. You're welcome. And uh, here's the thing. God's going to keep allowing you to go through stuff. It's going to be health. It's going to be financial. It's going to be relational. It's going to be all sorts of stuff. I promise you it's going to keep happening. You think that once you get through one, oh, I'll get a break. Ask Job. Doesn't work like that. Why is God letting that stuff happen? Because he's wanting to manifest himself through you and how you respond. Not that you say, oh, man, we're going to get a break. But you say, you know what? Lord's got this one, too. And you watch how God, as you sing praises at midnight, like Paul and Silas did, God's able to manifest himself. So the people around you say, I want to know that God that lives within you. But we too often are still focused on this life. Folks, the Bible says you're going to be put through it. It's part of it. It's what it is. But he's wanting to manifest himself through you as you trust him. All right. Now, in the time we have left, I want to go to something pretty cool. Go back to Colossians 1. Paul said that the stewardship or responsibility that he had gotten from God was to make known fully the word of God. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go there. But if you go to look at Acts 20, verses 24 through 27, he actually says to the Ephesian elders when he met them there in Miletus, he said, look, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I have not hesitated to preach to you the whole counsel of God. Paul here in Colossians 1, look at verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and ages, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. We're going to get to that in just a second. 
Paul said that the stewardship or the responsibility that he had been given from God was to make known fully the word of God. By the way, is that your responsibility? Someone says, yes, the rest of you are chicken. <laughs> and by the way, the answer is only yes if you're called to be a preacher of the word of God. If you're not called to be a preacher of the word of God, it is not your responsibility to make known the full teaching of the word of God. There are those who are called to be the preachers and the teachers of the word. And what does the Bible actually say in James chapter 3 verse 1? Not let, don't let anyone seek, don't let everybody seek to be a preacher or a teacher. Doesn't it say that? Don't everybody try to be a teacher. Because those of us who do are going to be held in higher accountability. God is not expecting you to teach the whole counsel of the word of God. He's just wanting you to live it out in the way that he's gifted you in the area he's put you. If it's giving, give. If it's serving, serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it's encouragement, encourage. If it's writing notes, if it's intercessory prayer, if it's making a phone call, if it's talking to people on the internet, whatever it is he's called you to do, just do that. Just do that. Paul said that what God gave me to do was to make known the full counsel of God to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. Oh, he preached to the Jews here and there when that opportunity arose. But mainly it was to the Gentiles. Yes? And though most of us are not going to be called to be preachers, there's going to always be a time now and then when God will put words in our heart that will just burn that he wants us to speak. Yes. Oh, he will use you to speak here and there. Some of you are called to be mamas. Some of you are called to be grandmamas. And you're going to have an invest in, in, in interest investing in the lives of those children. You want to have a fun study? Just do a study of the Samuels and the Moseses and all these big people in the Bible. And you go back and find that they had a praying mama. They had a praying mama. We look at the Moseses and, and the Samuels and we don't even think about the Hannahs. And the, did anybody give her a name? Very good. Jochebed. Jochebed. All right. Paul also said that not only was he supposed to teach the whole counsel of God, he was also to make known a mystery. Look at what he says here. To make known a mystery hidden for ages in other generations, but now revealed to his saints. What we're going to do in the time we have left is real quick, look at the fact that actually mysteries or secrets that the scriptures speak of are divine truths that God chooses not to reveal at certain times, but later on chooses to reveal. All right, now you got to stick with me here because this is very important because it's a dangerous road if you take it on a wrong way. Mysteries are secrets. You're going to see them all through the Bible. I'm going to show them tonight. Are secrets that the scriptures speak of and they are divine truths that God reveals to those that seek them through Christ. But these truths must be written in the scripture for them to be of God. Watch out of anybody that says, I've got this new revelation from God that has never been revealed in scripture. Do you understand? We have the closed canon of Scripture in the sense that this is what we're to check everything against. God's Spirit still speaks, but He will never tell you something that doesn't line up with this. But if you're faithful to study the Scriptures, the Bible teaches that there were things that the Old Testament prophets never understood, nor were they to understand. God chose to reveal them later on at a different time. Folks, fight it all you want. There are different dispensations of God throughout the Bible. It's very clear. So many people are like, oh, you're a dispensationalist. Yes, because the Bible is. You believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament? You're a dispensationalist too. 
Hebrews chapter 1. In the past he spoke through the prophets. Now he's speaking through his son. He spoke one way at this time. This way he's doing it a different way. The Bible teaches that God has worked in different ways at different time periods for his purposes and for his glory. Get over it. The Bible teaches us that. And that's why we need to correctly divide the word of truth because it's broken up into sections and God reveals portions of it at time. Now, don't let anybody tell you they got a new one that isn't here. But I'm going to show you quickly that actually there's a bunch of, of mysteries that God used Paul to reveal that hadn't been revealed prior to this. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Um, oh, and by the way, if you were to go back and look at Acts 17, you'll notice that when Paul taught in there in, the, in Berea, the Bereans checked everything he said, what? <laughs> against the scriptures. You check everything I say against scriptures, you check anything anybody says against the scriptures. All right? But I'm going to give you just four. Mysteries that weren't revealed in the Old Testament, but are revealed in the New that Paul talks about. One is this, that the Messiah or the Christ would be God in the flesh. Now, the Old Testament in Isaiah 9, 6 said that his name would be Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. But it never really made sense and hadn't been revealed until the New Testament that Jesus would actually be God himself in human form. All right. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, look at verses 2, 3 and 9. Paul says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 9, also he says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Well, this word mystery, a better way is to just say it's a secret. That's a good translation. It's a secret that God revealed later on. Here's the first one that we talk about here. The Messiah or the Christ would be God in the flesh. Here's another one, though. Look at uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Another mystery revealed is that the Jews would be hardened as a nation in unbelief for a time until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Romans 11, look at verse 25. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, this secret, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Does that mean a Jew can't be saved? No, it's a partial hardening. Jews are still able to be saved. But as a whole, the nation is not going to respond until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And then he's going to finish what he started back in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, when he said 77s are decreed for your people and the city of Jerusalem. We're in that time period between the first... A uh, group of sevens, if you will, the 69 sevens already being literally fulfilled until the time Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the day of, of uh, what we call Palm Sunday. He was welcomed in Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, and then he was put to death. There's a break in that prophecy until the last seven year period, which we know from our study of scriptures of the tribulation period, which is further evidence of the fact that the church will be gone before he finishes that last seven. Let me tell you a mystery, Paul says. Let me tell you a secret. Israel is experiencing a hardening right now, in part, until God's done with this church thing. When he's done with the church thing, then all Israel is going to be saved. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24? He was talking to the Jews, not the church. Talking to the Jews, he said, And all who stand firm to the end will be saved. Are we saved by standing firm to the end? No, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But at the end of the tribulation period, all the Jews that have stood firm to the end through all the stuff that they're going to go through, Antichrist trying to put them to death, and they're hiding out in the area of Moab and Basra, when they, those who stand firm to the end, all of those, all of Israel will be saved when he comes and reconciles them. All right, that was a mystery that had been revealed. 
Let me give you another one. Go to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Here's another mystery that's revealed, that the Jewish believers and Gentile believers would be equal in God's eyes in the church. He has a plan for the nation of Israel. He's got a plan for the church. But another mystery that Paul's going to reveal to us here in Ephesians 3 is that the Jews and Gentiles together would be equal in God's eyes in the church. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All the promises for Israel are also now available to us who are Gentiles in the church. Why? Because God has chosen to make us equal. Now, that doesn't mean that the church has replaced Israel. He's not said that. But all the promises that He gave to Israel, we're going to experience them too during the Millennial Kingdom and all that kind of stuff. He's grafted us in. Alright? One more mystery. The rapture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 52. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Paul says, uh, Behold, I tell you a mystery. I tell you a secret. Let me tell you a secret, folks. We shall not all sleep, or we're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Hallelujah. Isn't, that, isn't that cool? That's something that hadn't been revealed prior to that. By the way, in all these passages where people try to read Jesus talking about the rapture in Matthew 24, he's not talking about the rapture. You know why? Because the rapture hadn't been revealed until this. So stop trying to read the rapture into Matthew 24. It's not there. Well, doesn't it say one will be, two will be working in the field, one will be taken, one will be left? Read your Bible faithfully and you'll realize that he says, as it was in the days of Noah, who were the ones taken? The wicked. Who were the ones left? The righteous. At the end of the tribulation period, when God takes all the wicked off of the earth, who's going to be left? The righteous. He's talking in context about the tribulation period. We try to read the rapture into stuff that isn't there. Paul says, I'm going to tell you a secret. It hadn't been revealed yet. There's going to be this thing called a rapture. Now, the word rapture is actually not in our Bibles, but it comes from the Latin translation where we have raptizo, and it means to be caught up. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who hope have no hope. We believe that Jesus died. We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him and then those, their bodies are going to come up out of the ground and we are caught alive at that time. We'll be caught up to go be with Him. By the way, did you catch that? Paul expected it to happen in his lifetime. He said, in we who are alive. He didn't say in all y'all who are alive at that time. He said, in we who are alive will be caught up. Paul expected it to happen in his lifetime. He didn't know when. He just knew that we were to be ready because it could happen at any moment. What did he say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 and following? He said, I fought the fight. I finished the race. And now I know there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, but not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Amen. Folks, let me tell you a secret that hadn't been revealed until this time. There's a thing called the rapture coming. And Jesus is going to come with those who are with him. 
and their bodies are going to come up out of the ground, and we who are alive are going to be caught up, and we're going to go be with the Lord. What did Jesus say in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3? He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. Or would I, if it weren't so, as some translations say, would I have told you that I would come back and get you, and I will come and take you to be with me where I am. I don't know if you know that or not, folks, but if he's going to his father's house and he's coming to take us and taking us to be back where he is, that's the rapture. That's not the second coming. People have tried to make the rapture and the second coming at the same time where we go, whoop, whoop, and then back down to the earth. Jesus says, no, uh-uh, I'm going to where my father's house is and I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come and get you. Oh, and lastly, he wasn't going to get our rooms ready as we've heard people say over the years. What Jesus was saying at that moment was prior to the cross. You know how he prepared a place for you and me? Through his death on the cross. He didn't have to go up there and start swinging a hammer and a saw. People say, well, it took him six days to make the earth. He's been working on my place for 2,000 years. It's really going to be awesome. And guys, no. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he prepared the place for you by his death on the cross. That's how he prepared the place. Did you catch this? In my father's house are they already exist many rooms did you catch it for years we thought that he was going to go and get our room ready no there already is tons of space in my father's house i'm preparing a way for you through what i'm about to do on the cross and folks if you have trusted jesus as your savior if he's prepared a place for you because you've received it by faith he will come back and take you to be with him where he is. There is a rapture coming. And I believe the Bible teaches in way more time than we have tonight that it's prior to the last seven-year period for the nation of Israel. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. But folks, if you've been watching what's going on in this globe, the hatred for Israel is been exponentially increasing across the globe. I saw tonight on the news that they showed this one reporter who was Jewish, who dressed in Jewish garb and walked down the streets of Paris and he just recorded all the epaulets and all the people who were discussing him and all this stuff. And as he walked by a little Muslim kid holding his mama's hand, the child said, doesn't he know that he's going to be killed? Child said this. And I thought to myself, God told us a long time ago that all the nations on the earth are going to turn against Israel. It's happening, it's happening, it's happening. Folks, I hope you're ready. And between now and then, we're to encourage each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. So leave your pastor alone and go be used of God to help them become more and more like Jesus as God's gifted you. And just be happy with what little bit he has you to do and watch how he rewards you for eternity. Oh, by the way, we never even got to the mystery that's going to be revealed that in this passage, which is Christ in us. That's next week. We're going to be dealing that next week. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the mystery we're going to dive into. All right. Thanks for coming. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for this chance to study your word. We thank you for that. The more we dive into it, the more excited we get. The more we look at the whole of scripture, the clearer everything becomes. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you're doing and what you've done. May we now stop thinking about church in the area of numbers and numerical growth or budgets and buildings. May we see it for what you say it's supposed to be, the body becoming more and more like Jesus, encouraging each other, speaking the truth, but in love, focusing on maturity, not immaturity. And Lord, just show us what little part we have. And Lord, we trust you for everything else. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.